This is the recording made in the chapel of the open book, number six in our studies in the book of Job. It is our custom at this meeting to read a portion of scripture together, and those of you who are listening, if you care to take part with us, will you switch off for a moment or two and read with us two psalms, Psalm 30 and 31. I think anyone who knows the book of Job at all will be conscious that there's a parallel experience here in some measure in these two psalms. The psalm 30 opens with praise and thanksgiving for he has been delivered and he has been healed. But he was brought, he says, right down to the very grave itself, to the very dust. And then occasionally he reveals uh, that he hadn't always spoken what you might call orthodox truth. Uh, Notice in verse 22, I said in my haste, I'm cut off. Well, this psalmist and Job is not the only one who said in their haste certain things. And you'll find that Job says to his so-called comforters, oh, he says, you take me up wrong. I know I burst out, he said, but you're taking it all piecemeal, putting it all to pieces, examining it word by word, but thank God he doesn't do that. Well, I think we must now turn to the book of Job itself, give it consideration. Owing to the fact that I knew that after three meetings there would be a gap so that I could visit the meetings and friends in the Midlands, I purposely revolve round the book of Job in those first three meetings to get some of the atmosphere to look at it at a distance. Well, now we've approached it, looked at it again from another point of view, and this evening we want to get down to the book itself. And one of the first things that we must do is to consider the fact that the bulk of the book is largely concerned with the three friends who came to console Job or to comfort him and Job's reaction. After that, Elihu steps into the story and then God breaks the silence and we reach the end. Now it is said, if you like to turn to the last chapter of the book of Job, it is said by God himself that verse 7, chapter 42, And it was so that after the Lord had spoken these words unto Job, the Lord said to Eliphaz the Temanite, My wrath is kindled against thee, and against thy two friends. For ye have not spoken of me the thing that is right, as my servant Job hath. (coughs) Well now I have a feeling, that if that verse were hidden from us, and we were given the book of Job, and we started reading Eliphaz the Temanite, and many of us would be taken in by much of his argument, we should discover he is a wise man. The things that that man knew, the ability in which he manifested his way to put his finger on the sore spot. We should have a difficulty to say that man was wrong. And yet, friends, I think with the time we've waded over and examined everything, we'll come to see this. That here we have the wisdom of the world, which is foolishness with God. For the one thing, the one outstanding difference between Job and Elihu and the three friends is this. 
that the three, three friends, they practically ransack heaven and earth with regard to tradition and moral issues and so on, but never once does one of those three friends ever use the word redeemer or ransom. But the one thing that stands out in the case of Job, although he lost his temper, although he said extraordinarily strong things sometimes in his agony, he does say, I know that my redeemer liveth. And Elihu, he steps forward and he does say, deliver him from going down to the pit. I have found a ransom. Well, that's the truth for all time. You'll get the wise of this world that will confound you by their wisdom. And yet, it's not the wisdom of God. And so if that's a lesson we learn, it'll be well worth realising it somewhat in this dramatic form. Now, first of all, let's look at these three men. Chapter 4. Eliphaz the Temanite. Eliphaz the Temanite. Well, if you like to look up the word Teman, you'll find it's an association uh, in line with Esau. And you will discover that there was a proverbial statement concerning the Temanites that they were noted for their wisdom. Well, now, is this Temanite? And uh, some of the words he says are most true. Verse 17. Shall mortal man be more just than God? Shall a man be more pure than his maker? You see? Oh, yes. True enough. We have to agree with that. But there's something about it that an examination reveals that's worth pondering. Notice chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Chapter 4, verses 7 and 8. Remember, I pray thee, whoever perished being innocent, or where were the righteous cut off, even as I have seen, they that plough iniquity and sow wickedness reap the same. Well, you say that's true. But is it all the truth? Is it true that the innocent have never suffered? That's the thing that started Job off. Because although... From one point of view, he wouldn't boast that he was better than any man. He said, I can't see that I've done anything so that this that's fallen upon me, loss of home, loss of children, loss of health, so I wish I were dead, I can't see that it's a just retribution. And that's where the division became between these two. The more they said that, the more he justified himself. Well, look again at chapter 5, 27. Lo, this we have searched, so it is. Hear it, and know thou it for thy good. We have searched, and so it is. Eliphaz is rather the man who brings to bear upon the case the question of experience. Well, experience is right. But all our experience must be exceedingly limited when we come to think of the vast issues of life and death, of sin and salvation. We want something a little bit more than just, I have searched and so it is. But that's this man. He stands for the man who measures all things by the yardstick of his own experience. Well, it's not big enough, as we shall see. Chapter 15, verse 17. Chapter 15, verse 17. This is Eliphaz still speaking. I will show thee, hear me, 
And that which I have seen, I will declare, which wise men have told from their fathers and have not hid it. So he's got experience and a little touch of tradition. I will show thee, I have seen. And then again, lastly, in chapter 22, verse 15. Hast thou marked the old way which wicked men have trodden? And there are only little symptoms. We should have to go solidly through these chapters to piece it together. But the suggestion is that Elifez represents this one approach to the great question of sin and its punishment and its possible salvation. Well now the next man, Bildad, he seems to stress more particularly the tradition that they entertained. Should we give that a hearing? Chapter 8, Bildad the Shuad, he speaks. And in verse 8, 10 and 20, he says, chapter 8, 8, For inquire, I pray thee, of the former age, and prepare thyself to search their fathers. For we are but of yesterday and know nothing, because our days upon earth are a shadow. Shall not they teach thee, and tell thee, and utter words out of their heart? And then apparently he goes on and gives a long quotation, verse 11 down to uh, 22. Then in verse 20 he says, Behold, God will not cast away a perfect man. Well, that must have touched Job very badly because the distinct statement is in Job 1 that God himself says, You've seen Job, he's a perfect and upright man. Well, he says, A perfect and a man God will not cast away. Well, then the logic says, Well, something's gone wrong with your perfectness then, Job. So here's a man, you see, once more, taking this traditional line. Then we'll look at chapter 18, verses 1 onwards. Then answered Bildad the Shuite and said, How long will it be ere ye make an end of words? Mark, and afterwards we will speak. Wherefore are we counted as beasts and reputed vile in your sight? And so he sort of rebukes. Um, he says, Well, I, I was going to read the whole of this chapter through, but I think our time won't permit us. If Elisaias represents experience, and Bildad is rather the man who's always dealing with the past, uh, the next man, he is the one that rather emphasises the question of merit. Chapter 11, Zophar the Naamathite. Chapter 11, verse 4 to 6. For thou hast said, My doctrine is pure, and I am clean in, in thine eyes. But all that God would speak and open his lips against thee, and that he would show thee the secrets of wisdom, that they are double to that which is. Know therefore that God exacteth of thee less than thine iniquity deserveth. And verse 14. If iniquity be in thine hand, put it far away. Let not wickedness dwell in thy tabernacle, for then shalt thou lift up thy face without spot. Yea, thou shalt be steadfast, and shalt not fear. That must have been rather a severe bit to listen to for Job. Lift up your face without spot. You see, he's being told 
that all that he's suffering is a result of iniquity which he hasn't put away. And chapter 20, verse 5, he says to Job, verse 4, Knowest thou not this of old since man was placed upon earth, that the triumphing of the wicked is short, and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment? Don't forget, these men are not preaching sermons to a crowd that might have been helped by this. These are all sitting there comforting this poor wretch of a Job. And this is what he's saying to him. The triumphing of the wicked is short and the joy of the hypocrite but for a moment. And so it seems that by uh, examining the different passages, or verse 29, that's the last verse. This is the portion of a wicked man from God and the heritage appointed unto him by God. And then Job answers again. Well, you see, there was something that they'd missed. And what we said just now, I'd like to repeat, so that we may not miss it. That if we took these chapters together, the sayings of these three men, and we sat down with them, most of us would have a tremendous difficulty in resisting their argument. We should all have to agree, I think, that it would not be easy to find three men of their calibre in any congregation you'd like to go to today. Three men who could sit and reason and argue and deal with things as these men did were no fools. And yet, they represent the wisdom of this world. Because one of the things that we've already observed, which I want to repeat, is that in all their conversation with Job, they never once entertained the slightest idea of redemption or ransom. Now, in spite of all that Job said that was wrong, he's the one that says, I know that my Redeemer liveth. And I have a feeling that cancels out a tremendous lot. And Elijah, when he stepped into the arena, he said, you haven't spoken right either. He's the one who says, God says, deliver him from going down to the pit. That's poor Job. I found a ransom. His flesh will return like a child. So you see, this is one of the earliest exhibitions of the difference between the wisdom of this world and the wisdom of God, which is called foolishness by the world, which is exhibited in the cross of Christ. You might notice just two statements in connection with Job himself. In chapter 325, chapter 325, he says, The thing which I greatly feared is come upon me, and that which I was afraid of is come unto me. I was not in safety, neither had I rest, neither was I quiet, Yet trouble came. That's how he begins to talk. And then you'll see in the, in verse 23, why is light given to a man whose way is hid and whom God hath hedged in? And you know, sometimes in great grief, a man utters truth. He says here, I'm hedged in. He says here, 
I'm hid. I wonder whether you are acquainted with that rather peculiar poem, The Hound of Heaven. It's a difficult poem, but it touches a spot. He said, I fled him down the arches of the years, and always behind me were coming those feet, still coming, with imperceptible pace coming after me. I tried to hide from him, I couldn't get away from him. And at long last he discovered that the one who was after him was the God of love, but he was running away from the God of love. And Job says, I'm hid. And Job says, I'm hedged about. And if only someone could have said to him, Job, you're uttering words which are words of revelation. He might have said, well, what do you mean? Shall we look for ourselves in case we've missed it? Two or three psalms. Psalm 27, verse 5. Oh, this is where, this is where he um, begins to make uh, the, uh, his own pleading. 27 verse 5. God forbid that I should justify you. Till I die, I will not remove mine integrity from me. But what I'm trying to find is, is where there are references to, um, I want Psalm. Yeah, Psalm 27 5. I was looking at Job for a moment. Psalm 27, 5. For in the time of trouble he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret of his tabernacle shall he hide me. He shall set me upon a rock. You see, same word. You can complain about being hidden, but oh, if somebody could have only said, but don't you see? Well, the three comforters never got to that bit. Or when you look at Psalm 31, 20. We read it ourselves just now. Thou shalt hide them in the secret of thy presence from the pride of man. Thou shalt keep them secretly in a pavilion from the strife of tongues. Or shall we look at Psalm 61, verse 4? 61, verse 4. I will abide in thy tabernacle forever. I will trust in the covert of thy wings, O Job, O Job, perhaps the shadow that you were complaining about, perhaps the hiding that you objected to was the outstretched wing, and you hadn't realised that. And then Psalm 91, verse 1, we hardly need to turn to it, for we know it almost, I suppose, by heart. 91. He that dwelleth in the secret place of the Most High shall abide under the shadow of the Almighty. Here's the one that's hidden. Then should we look at this word, to hedge? It's in Psalm 91, verse 4. He shall cover thee with his feathers, and under his wings shalt thou trust. He shall cover thee with his feathers. And so we find that sometimes in grief, Truth is expressed, although not quite realised or understood. Well now, what I want to do this evening is to step through the book of Job so that we may at least get a little idea of the arguments of these men 
You see, it's not possible for us because of our time, and I don't think it would be justified to spend the time to go through these chapters verse by verse, verse by verse, because we know at the finish that half the arguments that we shall read are wrong. Nevertheless, I think as we are giving the book a survey, it wouldn't do us any harm just to look. Now on this chart you will see Job's nine replies. Each of these friends they speak three times. And uh, sometimes they repeat themselves, sometimes they enlarge. They, they speak three times, Job replies to each of them three times. So we'll look just at a few outstanding features in the replies of Job. Chapter 6 and 7. This is where Job answers. Let's see how he starts. All that my grief were truly weighed and my calamity laid in the balances together. Have you got that? If you've got that, you'll see his objection. He says, look, it's all very well for you to be poking at me and telling me this and telling me that, but I wish you'd put in the scales the tremendous calamity over against my grief and then see what I'm enduring. Now, what I want to do this evening... I don't often do this, uh, but Carey, a writer on the book of Job, has given some sort of an analysis in his own words, and it links together certain features that might be useful. So, there we have the statement which I picked out in verse 5. He says, Doth the wild ass bray when he hath grass? You say, what's that all when, you know, these men spoke in parables? He said, it's all right, don't worry about that. He said, um, surely you can realise that I've got something a matter with me. The ass is not braying when he's got plenty to eat. I'm not complaining because I've got nothing a matter with me. Always asking them to be considerate. Well, now this is the way Carey gives you a little idea of six and seven. I don't know whether you'd like to look at six and seven and glimpse it through, but this is the way he gives a little summary. He says, he wishes that whilst his friend was judging of his experiences, he had been fair enough to throw his sufferings also into the scale, for nothing in nature cries out if it feels no hurt, and stomach naturally revolts against what is nauseous. Can that which is unsavoury be eaten without salt, or is there any taste in the white of an egg? That's a bit up to date, isn't it? You see his argument. He does wish for death. And he has the testimony of his conscience that it would be a happy release for him. Let them, if they will, show him his error. Only, if they would convince him, they must exhibit more fairness and must not judge of his words without estimating also his sufferings. He would remind God that his life was a mere wind and he conceives that he has the right to complain that being so short-lived, he should be treated with some such extreme severity and even be tempted to commit self-destruction. Well, there you see. That's chapter 6 and 7. He uses very strange expressions. Look in chapter 7. He says, verse 6, My days are swifter than a weaver's shuttle and are spent without hope. Oh, remember that my life is wind. You see? Then further down he says in verse 12, Am I a sea or a whale that thou sendest to watch over me? 
Well, there's the extraordinary condition of mind that Job was in there. Well, then we come to his next reply. He replies to Bildad in chapter 9 and 10. He says, I, I know it is so of a truth, but how should man be just with God? If he will contend with him, he cannot answer him one of a thousand. He says, look, verse 5, he removes mountains and they know it not. He overturns them in his anger. He shakes the earth. The pillars tremble. He commands the sun and it doesn't rise. He seals up the stars. Who's going to argue with God? He says, we can't do anything about it. So I'll read Carey's little comment at chapter 9 and 10. He says, Bildad's commonplaces are true enough. But how could any man plead righteousness before the omniscient and almighty God? He cannot but complain and question how God can condemn his own creature without hearing and can countenance wicked men. If God were mortal, and so perhaps not aware of his innocence, he, Job, could understand this severity of treatment as being an inquisition to discover his presumed guilt. But he can't see how God, almighty, all-knowing, should have to treat Job like that. Well, there's the beginning to show the sore spots in Job's mind and conception. So I put there, God's ways are unsearchable. That was baffling Job. Now, chapter 12 and 14, I've just got there that heading, Wisdom? Why, he says, robbers prosper. You're talking to me about wicked suffering. But he says, don't you know? Chapter 12, Job answered and said, No doubt ye are the people, and wisdom shall die with you. Have you ever met anybody like that, friends? Yes, I think we have. He said, But I have understanding as well as you. I am not inferior to you, yea, who knoweth not such things as these. And he says in verse 6, The tabernacles of robbers prosper, and they that provoke God are secure. So that's Asaph all over again. Asaph went through the same thing. He saw the ungodly prospering. They had more than heart could wish. And look at me, the way I'm treated. Friends, this is not a question that we can shelve and say, oh, we needn't bother. It's with us. It's with, it, with every generation. It's been the puzzle and problem of Christians from the beginning. This is a problem. It's not wise for us to shut our eyes to the fact that nobody has the complete solution as to why God, the righteous, omnipotent, all-knowing God, should have planned and arranged that for at least 6,000 years man should live in such miserable circumstances as millions of those who've lived on earth have had to exist. It's no good shutting our eyes to it or calling it fancy names. We're up against it the same as Job was. But there is an answer, but it's not done by shutting our eyes. It's done by rather opening them. So this third discourse of Job, Carey's comment. His disputants think none so wise as themselves, an opinion in which he cannot coincide. The godly safe, he says, the most rapacious are the safest, a principle which by God's provision, providence, holds good also throughout the whole brute creation. Well, I see that my time is beginning to run out. So I should have to skip one or two things. But I do draw your attention that in the middle of all these discourses, that is to say the central one, chapter 19, it's where he comes right out into that glorious confession in spite of it all.
I know that my Redeemer liveth. If you look at chapter 23 and 24, you'll see that um, he again questions their attitude. This is Carey's comment, 23 and 24. He is still rebellious and perplexed. Men everywhere perpetrating the most dreadful crimes in the country. They embezzle the lands and the cattle of the defenseless. In the desert, they live by marauding and other men were slave dealers or cruel slave owners. In the city, the murderer, the thief and the adulterer and on the sea, the pirate. All these, though their wickedness was sooner or later cut short in death, yet after all, died much as other men. Then we get to the end. The last of the discourse. 29 and 31. He first of all thinks of his former happy condition. At that time, when he appeared in public, he was received with dignity. Judging from appearances, he had then fondly hoped that his prosperity was secure. And now, he says, I'm the laughing stock of young fellows whose fathers have been a set of half-starved vagabonds, the dregs of society, and the most disreputable of men. And so, he brings his complaint to a close with these words. Chapter 31, verse 33. If I covered my transgressions as Adam by hiding my iniquity in my bosom. Did I fear a great multitude? Or did the contempt of families terrify me that I kept silence and went not out of the door? Oh, that one would hear me. Behold, my desire is that the Almighty would answer me and that my adversary had written a book. And then he said, verse 38, If my land cry against me, or that the furrows likewise thereof complain, if I have eaten the fruits thereof without money, or have caused the owners thereof to lose their life, let thistles grow instead of wheat, and cockle instead of barley, the words of Job are ended. And it's finished now, chapter 32. So these three men ceased to answer Job because he was righteous in his own eyes. They didn't know what to do with him, he didn't know what to do with them. And in that predicament, Elihu steps forward and says, Job, you have said all oh, that there were a day's man between us. I am in God's stead. And he, Elihu, is a sort of one of the earliest foreshadowings of the person and work of Christ. Well, if you say it hasn't been extraordinarily clear this evening, well, I don't know anybody who would say that of this tangle of argument in this book of Job. But I felt at least we ought to give it a little consideration even though we haven't been able to do justice to it. Now we are ready to consider the three great outstanding facts. The question of, if a man die, shall he live again? That's in this book, and gets an answer. How shall mortal man be just with God? That's in this book, and gets an answer. And then the great question of the ransom and the redemption, which is the first great forecast of the work of Christ on our behalf, as you know. So there we'll leave it once more. Pray that it may be of help to those who are considering this wonderful book. And perhaps if we are baffled by it, perhaps if we have to admit there are some things in it that beat us, it won't do us any harm occasionally to have to acknowledge that even we don't know everything. Otherwise, we might be named Eliphaz by some of our friends, or Bildad, or some such name as that. 
and we want to avoid such a possibility.